Hello. Welcome to another episode of Desert Rain Community Radio. Today we get into um, a little bit heavier topic. We discuss uh, David Morrison's near-death experience from about a decade ago, where he ended up in the ICU um, for several days and a long road to recovery afterwards. Uh, We also talk about uh, how that inspired him to uh, work with hospice and his uh, imaginative prayer called Dreamwalking. As usual, thank you, Diego, for your editing skills and making us sound like pros. Thank you to Monk Drums, which is what you hear in the background now and in, uh, at the outro, Jacob Nedia, MonkDrums.com. Uh, if you want to read some of David Morrison's writings and musings, check out TheRuin.com. If you want to hear other episodes, um, you can check out drcrpod.com. You can also find Desert Rain on Facebook. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into it. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Desert Rain Community Radio. I am here with David Morrison. How are you doing today, sir? Pretty good. Pretty good. A little tired, but I'm good. <laughs> too much too much partying. We we typically record these on Saturday. So you were yeah. you were partying on Friday yeah, night. Yeah, geeking huh? out, watching that Mandalorian <laughs> stuff. Mandalorian and uh That's a good show, that Mandalorian. And I oh I guess we might not want to do spoiler alerts. Yeah, no. But I, heard I don't want to big, talk about there it. There's a big ending. Yeah, all the all the kids when they lost their minds. <laughs> uh, so today we jokingly uh, called this the Death Cast. So I guess I'll just throw it <laughs> out there because it's the most I'm, wonderful time of the year. Why I'm not? Bound, Christmas I'm bound, time. I'm bound to say it anyways. <laughs> uh, but we wanted to revisit. So about a decade ago, uh, in two, January 2011, you had. Uh, uh, I would say probably a brush with death. Death. Yeah, definitely a near death. Yeah. Experience. Yeah. And so we wanted to not only review, not review. It's such a silly word, but um, explore that. But then also sort of connected with like how has that shaped your spiritual practices today? But you know, let's let's start with with the beginning, like. What 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 occurred for you back in January of, of two thousand eleven? Yeah, it was a it was a a sudden bolt of lightning kind of thing. I was uh, practicing. I went to a planning meeting for a retreat, mm. and where we rehearsed our, our the talks we were going to give. So I did that. This is like January 9th or tenth, something somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Um, all of a sudden, I just wasn't. I started feeling very cold, and my fingers. While, while you were at the meeting, yeah, you know, right yeah. after I gave this talk, yeah, I'd fi- I'd been feeling fine all day and right. before that, nothing, no indicators of anything wrong, and I just remember getting extremely cold, and chilled. My fingers turned blue. Oh, wow, uh, there was a a pain in my upper right groin area, like a lymph node there that mm-hmm. was uh, inflamed, I guess, and. 
And so somehow, you know, instead of going to the hospital, I drove from Las Cruces to back home to Chaparral. Which is about a 45-minute <laughs> yeah. drive. It's not, I cranked it's not up a, the heater. a short, it's not a short drive. <laughs> yeah. I cranked up the heater. I tried to call my dad for his birthday. and So you're feeling chills yeah, as you're driving. Extreme chills, yeah. I'm shaking, like violently shaking. Oh, wow. Kind of thing. And so I get home. And by the time I get home, I couldn't even walk. My legs were in so much pain and swollen up. Uh and, and so from the time you ended your talk to like the time you get home and you can't walk, how much, like how much time has elapsed? An hour, uh, two hours? Yeah, maybe an hour and yeah. 20 minutes or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah, it was quick. <laughs> and, you know, and I thought the hospital would be too expensive. So I didn't right, want to go. Which is always your, yeah. your first thought. It's like this is. is literally David Morrison's first yeah, thought. Yeah, I become George Costanza when I'm in my, on my deathbed. How much is this going to cost? Um, and so, yeah, somehow made it through that night. Uh, so you didn't go to, you, you stayed home. Right. Bed that night, yeah. yeah. Freaking my wife, my poor wife out, Marsha, uh, and, and my daughter, Anna. And so by the next morning, yeah, they had to carry me, literally carry me into the car and take me off to the And you were like hospital. extremely discolored at this point? Yeah, I think I looked like E.T. by the water <laughs> <laughs> when he looked like a, a frosted Bob Tart, you know. And so, you, yeah, I was starting to shrivel up already. And apparently. what are you phys physically feeling? Just extreme pain, especially in my legs. Are you still shivering? Like, are you still uh, I don't remember chilling? that. I just remember feeling sick. Okay. Uh, just not feeling right. Yeah. Everything was just wrong. And uh, so this is less than 24 hours to where you're yeah, headed to the hospital. Yeah. So they take me to the emergency room. They try to figure out some things. The first thoughts were I had a blood clot in my leg that might because your leg was so detached. Swollen. Yeah. And so then the emergency room doctor, she comes in and she says, well, it's not a blood clot. And, and, I'm, and I was like, well, that's good news. And she was like, no, actually, it's not. I was hoping it was a blood clot. Oof. And so that's when the room got kind of heavy and. And uh, so, did she know at that point what it was? She, no, or they were still t doing she, tests. She she had a hunch that I was uh, going septic, mm -hmm. so she started she started a round of antibiotics that probably caught it in time to save my life, probably. Mm -hmm. But I still had to go over the waterfall. So and so, so they're waiting for all these tests to come right. in. So by this time, it's nighttime, and they're they're putting me in an observation room, and then the tests all came in. So then four doctors come into the room, which that never happens. Yeah, it's not a good Yeah, a good sign. it wasn't a good sign at all. And they and they said, You're you are going septic and we need to put you in the ICU immediately. And so they're rushing me down there. It was like TV, you know. And and I don't think I I have an idea because of conversations you and I have um had in the past, but I'm not sure I exactly know what that means. What septic means? Right. Could you explain that yeah, a little it, bit? It basically means the bacteria infection has gone into your bloodstream. And so your body is shutting it. Uh, your body responds to it by shutting everything down. Shutting so, down the organs. Yeah. So when you go septic, it means the body waste that your kidneys and your liver would deal with, are no lo they're no longer dealing with that. So Because of the bacteria infection. Right. They've shut down. And so the yeah. toxins start to build up. Exactly. So it's not the bacteria that kills you. It's, mm. the, it's your own body's response. Uh, a lot of spiritual analogies there, right? right. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah. And so you're, 
So, so the waste in your body is starting to pile up in your skin and your body cavities, and you you are you're a septic tank. So Hence, no why septic. you were you were discolored, right? As exactly. it took you to the yeah, my okay. kidneys had already started to fail, mm-hmm. and uh, and so that's what they they notified me. Yeah, that my kidneys were completely offline, and the liver was also going, and the lungs were starting to fail too. So when they're moving you to ICU or, or maybe once you get to ICU, do they induce a coma? Like what, what, what sort yeah, of Yeah, that was one of the options. So they wanted to do an emergency surgery on the leg. They thought maybe that's where the origin of the mm. infection was. And if they could surgically deal with that, then maybe they could stop the onslaught. And and again, I told them, well, that's pretty expensive. Uh, so I Did said, you really say that? Yeah. <laughs> They 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 they, you, they uh, framed it like they would give me a choice. They said we can do an exploratory surgery tonight, okay. or we could try to wait out the night. And if you live, we can maybe do an MRI tomorrow. On and your- this is your first night in the hospital, right? Okay, I'm in the ICU at this point. Right. And I said, well, I said the surgery sounds more expensive. And so one of the doctors, he had an Eastern European accent, so he, he sounded more. Uh, uh, authoritarian, <laughs> authoritarian, and uh, and and uh, sensational. Yeah. So he's mm. all, sir. Do you understand? You are in grave danger. <laughs> and I was like, oh man. You were like over there grave, checking, grave checking danger. Your, your bank balance. <laughs> yeah. Grave danger. And and so they overrode my decision and and said do the surgery and. And then, uh, and then they said they would. That it was a possibility that night that they would uh, induce a coma and put me on life support. So they walked me through that, told me what that would be interesting like, and uh, so they did the surgery late that night. Um, they couldn't find it. They didn't find anything. And this was, the surgery was in your leg, right? Correct? Yeah, mm-hmm. my right leg. They just did an incision there, and mm-hmm. and I went into cardiac arrest. During the surgery, so my heart stopped. They had to, to you know, shock me mm-hmm. or whatever they do. And uh, so I woke up in the ICU the next morning, not on a ventilator, not on, on life support, but very sick, throwing up constantly, which is kidney failure mm-hmm. and feeling very, very sick and dying. You know, the dying process right. was happening and um, – and so now you're about 24 hours into your hospital. Yeah, stay. very close to death and <clears throat> um, feeling very terrible. And so what, What I mean, I'm sure, I don't know how much of this you remember, but like, were you able to have visitors? Were, you know, what, were you calling people? Were you too sick to call yeah, people? Yeah, I was way or? too sick to call anybody. Yeah. Uh, Marsha, I think, put the call out on, on Facebook but the doctors were concerned. They're like, oh, great, he's a pastor. That means there's going to be a lot of visitors. Mm-hmm. And I told them, well, don't worry, I'm not a popular pastor. So <laughs> I will be lucky if my mom and dad come. <laughs> my immediate family. <laughs> yeah, maybe, though. Maybe my wife is on the fence on this. Uh, and so, uh, um, and yeah, my impression was when people would come to see me, I would, I would for some reason, I was afraid that they thought, that I was faking this. I don't know why that was in my head. It's such an interesting thing. Yeah. And so I was like, wanted them to know I really wasn't faking, (laughs) that this is the real thing. This is the real, Uh, death is literally knocking on the door. And I remember also having the weird, the thought that if I can keep moving, that somehow the Mm -hmm. pain would 
subside or I could somehow escape final death, you know, kind of, if I just keep moving my just, foot. Just like so I just kept in. moving in the bed constantly. And, uh, and part of it was, yeah, a pain response, you know, the constant pain that I was in. So you wake up from this first surgery and your, your body's obviously rejecting, I mean, it's throwing up and, and everything. Yeah. What, what sort what was the hospital wise? What was the next? Did you have more procedures? Uh, I think they just had me on, Massive antibiotics. Mm-hmm. I think they were. That was their. I remember looking at. I remember Marsha told me, and I remember seeing. Uh, they ran out of hooks on the IV uh, stand. You know, right. <laughs> they had like bags upon bags. Right. It was just like a yeah. cluster of bags. One of them was looked like it was moss. Looked like moss was in the bag. Some sort of super antibiotic. Some, some green sludge. Yeah, going they into had your one veins. called a banana bag that was this. Super long, bright, bright yellow wow. for you know vitamins and things like yeah. that. So, so yeah. So I languished there for I think it was three days in the ICU. Oh, you were in the ICU for three yeah, days. and uh, it was it was pretty intense. And no more surgeries during those three days. No, no, they were just waiting to see to I guess to to put me on my life support or not, you know. And and maybe this is. Um, People that experience this, uh, the survival rate the first time you end up in the hospital, from what I understand, is pretty low. Yeah. And then the six months after is maybe you could talk about that a little bit just to sort of paint the picture of how severe. Yeah, it's it's a very low survival rate initially. And then Marsha found out. She didn't tell me until after I passed the date. Mm. But she knew this whole time that uh, if you survive the initial uh, ICU or, right. you know, you have something like a 40% chance in the next six months of living. So so it's not a good rate. Yeah. In fact, I've looked for survivor groups for sepsis right. uh, survivors and I haven't found Support any. Groups. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, that's how I, I that's how I uh, remember because you and I have had that conversation about support groups yeah. you know, just in general and, and you've shared about that one and trying to find yeah, support not groups almost impossible. In ten years, I've met one person who survived sepsis, and I met her just you know just in passing. I think she was out here for a retreat or something. Mm. And how she, far removed was she from her incident? I think a decade. Okay, so she had yeah, had some time. and she was still on kidney dialysis weekly. Oh wow! So I, I got off easy, right. <laughs> and that just from the damage. From your organs shutting, shutting down. down. Yeah, yeah. So my organs started making a recovery, and the kidneys were the last ones. The The kidney doctor was the last guy to sign off. Mm. So then they put me in another room. They were they were going to amputate both legs. Wow. So, I, so I went from sudden death to upgraded to amputation of both legs and then amputation of just one leg. And, and, and so I, I don't know if I knew that about the amputation. So what was sort of going through your mind— when they're like, you're going to live, but... Yeah, they're going to... I was trying to look on the bright side, and I was thinking of all those uh, commercials with the uh, the army survivors. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're super runners, and they're bouncing. They're like walking on the moon. And so I was thinking they could make me taller. And uh, and this one terrible doctor, she was... The, all the doctors were great except for one. Uh, and she was this super evangelical Christian. Oh, yeah, yeah, She yeah. was terrible. Yeah, and, you've, um, you've talked... 
We've talked about that yeah. before. Uh, Not on well, the podcast. She told me, with your luck, they'll only amputate one leg and you won't be taller. <laughs> And I was trying to make a, you know, yeah, yeah, and I was yeah. trying to say, you know, I won't be greedy. I'm not going to ask for six feet, you know, uh, you know, five, seven would be good. You know, uh, you know, I'm yeah, modest whatever. about five, this. Five, nine. <laughs> yeah, whatever. And, uh, so, yeah. So then they ended up, uh, doing what's called a fasciotomy it has nothing okay. to do with fascism, but it's just as painful probably as fascism <laughs> on a nation. Uh, Anyway, it got, uh, you know, it gets compacted in one single area in your body. And it was in my right calf. The infection was stuck there. And so... So your body's still fighting the infection? By isolating it, yeah. And and how many days? This is like day four? Oh, this is probably like... um, Probably day 10. Oh, okay. I got out of the ICU in the third day, but I was in... You were still in the hospital? Yeah, I moved to a regular room for... Yeah, because I was way past Martin Luther King weekend. Mm. And I remember watching NFL playoffs mm-hmm. in cold Chicago, sloppy, a sloppy field and right. all that. M- mostly mud. Yeah, so they did a fasciotomy, which is uh, uh, the infection is, is isolated in the, in the leg. So they had to open that up and they created a wound there that they had to keep open for about three months. So you had an open wound yeah, on your calf. Purposely opened. Right. Huge. And that just, I assume just the idea is to heal from the inside out? Yeah. So they attach what's called a uh, a wound vac, a wound vacuum on it. So, I'm, so it's sucking out all the mm. stuff and you're attached to this machine that I took home with me. You, and you, you had a strap that you carry. and So you had it on you 24-7. Oh, yeah, yeah, bag. for about three months. Had to go to a wound care clinic. And those of you who are diabetic, you know about these, uh, where they had to reopen the wound once a week and scrape it open to keep it keep it. Because open. your body would try yeah, to heal Yeah, your body itself. wants to heal it and close right. it. Yeah. So, yeah, so it was an excruciatingly painful time and uh, of recovery. So during that, like, what do you... I mean, I, I, we've gone over your 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 history, you know, your spiritual history. But like, what what kind of things can you grasp to? And, and I'm thinking like the three months. Or no, let's let's start with those first three days in ICU. Yeah. Like, are you even like prayer and meditation? Is that even like? I think when that happens, the autopilot of prayer and meditation mm-hmm. kicks in. At least that's what it. That was your. Experience. It did for me then, and it did for me this recent bout with death, mm-hmm. just this auto autopilot. And so your regular practice of prayer or meditation, whatever your practice is, devotion, devotion that you do, um, that's, that's the drill. That's the practice. And then when, when the real stuff kicks in, it right. kind of takes when over and it, life punches you in yeah, the face. So, so to speak. very much in the zone, so okay. to speak, very much aware of the, of the present moment, very much aware of the pain. Um, when they first told me I had 12, they, they actually told me I had 6 to 12 hours to live on that first night in the mm-hmm. ICU. So that was kind of unbelievable. I was like, really? I don't know. Yeah, 24 hours ago, I felt fine. It's just, I just didn't – it was hard to grasp. You I was going to wow, say, this like, is I, it, logically, huh? I don't think you can you can really wrap your mind around yeah. it because, yeah, you're less than 20 or 25. Yeah, and it was so fast to, say, to be able to say goodbye to people mm-hmm. and – 
and so it just didn't wasn't going to happen, you know. It was right. a sudden death kind of thing. And um, religiously, I, I didn't sense any special comfort from God, if you will, uh, that uh, religious people normally you didn't claim see the to feel. Light. No bright light. No well, trip to you heaven. You could have written a book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You'd be exactly. Today. Uh, heaven tourism. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. But no, there was nothing like that. There was one night in the or daytime in the ICU it was on the the last day I was in there you know in the ICU you're not in a room you're in uh, mm. curtains right so there was a, a woman next to me in 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 the curtains uh and she went into cardiac arrest and they and Marsha was with me at the time and they kicked her out kicked Marsha yeah they cleared out all mm. the visitors in the ICU and they st- started uh using the defibrillator on her mm. and those paddles mm. and and then I saw her family crying outside later. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so I'm sitting there by myself <laughs> praying for her and thinking if I open my eyes or if I, yeah, if I, if I, uh, or if I close my eyes, I'm going to see her at the foot of my bed and she's going to say, you want to come be, with me? She'll be floating yeah. right above you. And right. so I'm praying for her saying, don't come over here. Don't come over here. Don't come over here. But it was very strange at that moment. I did have kind of a vision and it was a, uh, I was in a, a very dark place in this vision. And I got thrown out of a van into a dark alley. Uh, and my body just rolled in, you know, on the concrete and into the. So you're having this vision as the commotion is going. Yeah, and yeah, while I'm praying to for save her. her life, right? Exactly. While I'm trying not to throw up. And that could, actually, I think I'd stopped doing that by mm-hmm. then. I think I was stabilizing because that was my last. Okay. Day there, so you see yourself in this alley. Your body's rolling. Yeah, and they the threw me alley. out of this van, and 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 I was just the feeling of isolation and brokenness. My body was just lying in the puddle of this alley, and it was kind of like a movie uh, where the camera moves up, you know, over the horizon, and I see all the city lights, but the city lights weren't lights; there were people praying for me. Oh wow! And and then those lights uh, converged into one light a huge bright light that flooded the alley and then outstepped a, a person mm-hmm. and and picked me up and said, let's get out of here. Mm. And uh, I'm very strange at that moment when I, and I opened my eyes after that vision and I had a, a thought of my, uh, a friend of mine, an older uh, man named Jim who mentored me in prison ministry. Okay. For some reason he came to my, uh, my mind and with, I'm not, I'm not, sensationalizing this uh, or exaggerating this, at that very moment, a nurse in the middle of all that commotion pops her head in my curtain thing and and she says, uh, she says, Mr. Morrison? And I was like, yeah. She says, uh, you, had a, you had a call from uh, your friend Jim and he says he loves you. And I was like, what the heck? And so that was just a heavy, heavy, heavy thing, you know, and Jim yeah. has since passed away. And He passed uh, this year, right? A couple of years ago, okay, yeah. Okay. Um, and so that that was a very heavy thing. And then I get out that night. And as they're moving me, I well, ask. Well, you don't get out. You out out get of moved. ICU. Right. Yeah. You get moved within the hospital. Which was a big move if you're yeah. in an ICU for three days. Yeah, right. Uh, and so I asked about the lady next door. And I was, you know, expecting them to say, yeah, she passed away. And, the, and so I asked about her. And the nurse was, oh, no, she's fine. <laughs> she's in a regular room now. And she's eating. And she's she's going to make it. So That's I was incredible. very happy about that, too. That's incredible. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It's the word. The words don't even do justice. Yeah. But yeah. So, <clears throat> so I guess then as you evolve, you're still in the hospital for a while. You have, you have this wound back for I think you said three months. Yeah, or so. Yeah. So, so then how did sort of as this became your new normal, which is probably not the best way to word it, but for context, context sake, how then did your uh, prayer and meditation life sort of evolved from there? Uh, it was probably just, the whole thing was a diminishing experience. So when I get back, you know, they've already, the community here wanting to be responsible had already kind of replaced any duties and jobs that I had mm. to, you know, when people are in mourning and, and when they respond to to emergencies like this, they want to get busy yeah, and so I had already been replaced is the way it felt. You know, they didn't mm. intend it that way, but that's right. definitely the way it felt. So I felt uh, completely marginalized, but pushed you, to the side. Would you have been able to do any no, duties? Okay. No, no. I was very sick still. Yeah. But uh, but still that marginalization still oh, felt yeah, real. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the financial ruin that came with it. You, know, you have to hospital. pay for this stuff. Yeah. 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 So my wife and Marsha and I were just, you know, we knew we were – Financially ruined as well. Mm. Um, and so I do, there was another, a second vision. And there was, and that was really it. There was those two visions in this whole experience. Uh, so when Marsha uh, brought me home, it felt so good that night. They let me out at night and the smells of downtown of the sewage and the smoke and uh, the car exhaust was right. one of the best smells yeah. I'd ever smelled. It's not... It's so much different than the hospital smell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and then Marsha took me over uh, Scenic Drive in El Paso, mm, which is a mountain. It's so mountain pass. Yeah. I got to see that. Looks then, over you downtown know, El Paso and into yeah. see what that is. I didn't think I was going to see that ever again, you know. And so, so, the, so she takes me home, and probably I think the next day, or maybe it, I remember it was a Sunday, so I don't mm -hmm. remember. It was during the day. And I was in my uh, bedroom, in bed, and because um, I couldn't walk or anything. Um, and, you know, when you're in the hospital, you're kind of in and out of sleep, and mm -hmm. there's people coming and going. You see shadows crossing the threshold of your door. So I kind of, I saw somebody walk in, and the depression had just hit me, the, the emotional depression of all of this, you, of feeling marginalized and feeling. And you're two days into being home. Yeah. So you're still then, relatively new. Yeah. So it's like you made it, but <laughs> this is, this is going to be your life. Emotionally. Yeah, yeah. You're going to be chronically ill the rest of your life. You may never recover. You're definitely never going to recover financially. Uh, it's, you know, so the, all the weight of that was on me. I was feeling depressed and, um, and so, yeah, so I was drifting in and out of sleep and I saw a shadow come in like a person coming in the mm -hmm. room and it, and it went, I went into another vision, which is, you know, a vision is a is a form of imaginative prayer. Um, so you know, I'm not claiming any supernatural connections or right this special special uh, messages from heaven about the end times. Uh, you know, I don't claim any of that stuff. It's just imaginative prayer. Your mm -hmm. imagination gets touched by the Holy Spirit, and the language is visions and dreams. So that's that's what I mean by. But it, it was a uh, it was a an, a vision of uh, Francis of Assisi mm. came up to my bed. It was very it was very um, 
uh, it was a very vivid right. kind of vision slash dream. And he grabbed my hands, and he had he had the, the stigmata uh, mm. that the legend right. says he had, and uh, and and the reason why I knew it was Saint Francis of Assisi because I've seen all the paintings, so that's how I knew it was him. And uh, he had an ID, he had a, <laughs> uh, a badge, yeah. ID badge like the nurses and doctors yeah. have. I'm just joking. And and he said uh, he said don't don't make your wounds your enemy, son. Mm. He said befriend your wounds. And then your wounds will become one with the sacred wound of Christ, and you'll be and you'll be healed in a way that uh, that is beyond healing. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, you know, kind of came out of that vision, dreams, uh, just crying and the tears going into my ears, very irritating. Uh, <laughs> tears very are very annoying. inconvenient yeah. things, aren't they? <laughs> and. Uh, have you, ever, have you ever tried to have a conversation with someone while you're crying? It's the most embarrassing. Well, <laughs> or that you're trying to not cry. Yeah. But it's so obvious that you're holding yeah. it back that you might as well it's just, just a, cry. It's just a ridiculous thing. So I was in that state. Yeah. And so, yeah. So instead of uh, fighting the thing, you know, usually when mm-hmm. people are chronically ill, you know, he, he fought cancer, you know. Want to get rid of, yeah. get away from whatever it and is. That's just, uh, you know, being chronically ill myself, uh, that doesn't work mm-hmm. for me anyway. I, well, I and I think for some people that idea of fighting cancer does work for them. Yeah, so, you know, you know I mean? but for me, no, yeah. no. But befriending your wounds, yeah, that was a spirituality mm-hmm. I can, I, I, that resonates with me and it, it got me through. And it seems, I mean... I guess I can only speak about my, but sort of, you know, my at times struggle with mental illness, the times that I've embraced it, it doesn't make it easier, but right. it's, it, it, there's a different way of dancing with it when you embrace something yeah, like that exactly. for me. And it sounds like that's, that's how you encountered your wounds yeah. at that moment. Well, in our culture, it may be a human thing. I don't, yeah, know. I don't know, but we tend to, Resist dark emotions mm-hmm. rather than harness them, or like you said, dance with them. That's a better way to say it. And I, I think it's a healthier. I think most psychology today would say resistance is uh, resisting dark emotions actually enhances them and strengthens them. Well, <laughs> and it's yeah, and you might get away from them for there's a temp, there is a temporary relief that's there, um, but when, if you bury them. They're going to come up like a volcano eventually, maybe not this week or this year, but eventually that stuff will be dealt with one way or the other. And I did have, you know, in the recovery process, there was definitely uh, like sleep paralysis Mm. experiences where you hallucinate Mm -hmm. and and your, I guess your body is is asleep still, but your mind is awake and you're terrified. Usually it's It's manifest and terrifying. Mm -hmm. For me, it wasn't. It was uh, we have a, a TV cabinet in our bedroom, and it uh, a couple of times I'd wake up. I, my body was asleep, but my mind was awake. And uh, the TV cabinet took the shape of that red uh, furry thing in Bugs Bunny. Bugs but it, you know, it would terrify me, nevertheless. So I didn't get the old uh, witch sitting on my chest like most right. more alien abduction. But it was just those kinds of things. And then but I'd wake up at terrifying. two in the morning, wide awake, mm-hmm. and stay awake for hours. And uh, until, you know, three or four hours. And so I, I resolved a lot of fearful and dark things 
through that experience where I, one night I realized, what if I asked myself, what if my deepest, darkest imaginings manifested in front of me every night? You know, the so your total, your deepest fears yeah. came to life every night. All those characters, you know, mm-hmm. Freddy Krueger shows up, the kid with the the blasted head shows up, says, let me show you my dad's gun, you know. Right. That, what if every night they, what if that happened to me? And eventually I would start talking to them. Eventually mm-hmm. I would befriend them and and, then, and then I wouldn't be afraid of them yeah. and, and we they'd be integrated. And then all of a sudden, yeah, the sleep paralysis completely stopped. I've never had it since. And I have a hard time getting scared of the night, even at Halloween. It's weird. So... And it sounds like there was a was a connection there, but as you so did that also help with the the marginalization that you were experiencing in the sense of like feeling uh, I don't know what the the right word, but sort of brushed aside by the community, yeah, diminished, yeah, diminished. Like how what how did that sort of turn the corner where you felt integrated again or you know what what did that look like over those Uh, three three months or yeah i don't i don't i don't think that gets resolved in in my experience Mm. i think that you know and the the problem you know with contemporary spirituality it's whether it's new age stuff or if it's uh contemporary christianity it, it gets sold to the public as uh this, this will enhance you and this will mm. frame a story for you to make sense of your life. And it'll they, transform you. But they, yeah, the claim is mm. this will, tra- this reframing and this self enhancement will transform you. Mm. That's, and it's not true. The transforming is, happens to you in your diminishments. Mm. In Christianity, we call it the, the kenosis, the emptying out of, of mm. Christ is the emptying out of my own self. Uh, experience of the cross, yeah, and it's in recovery, we call yeah, it hitting rock bottom, exactly. In yeah. Buddhism, they call it emptiness, and you know, Judaism, they call it the desert. So, so those things, yeah. So I may have been reintegrated uh, functionally later, but it doesn't, you know, those the the spiritual process of being diminished is supposed to be ongoing anyway, mm-hmm. and so. But you don't, do you still feel diminished? In the sense of like being part of the community? No, no, the community, they came around me and I was very fortunate to have a, people that loved right. me and, and would help me. Um, in So this was in January. Right. So then in March, I uh, uh, got sick again mm. and uh, with cellulitis, but the same symptoms. Which is of, also... It could go septic. Infection, right? Yeah it's, yeah. yeah, it's an infection in your skin. Yeah. Uh, and so I had to be re-hospitalized. This is in March. So two months later. Yeah, and it was only a day or two. And I think it was just a day. And But after that, then real depression started setting in for me. Uh, because I felt like this if this is going to be... The rest of your life. Yeah, I can't do this. This can't be done. I can't be going to the hospital once a month. Um you know, and so I, I, first time in my life, I started contemplating uh, suicide for sure. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so there were prayer meetings going on outside 
during that time, and I would walk by them, probably passive aggressively, and I was just like, I don't, I don't, you know, I am. yeah, I, I'm not gonna do this anymore, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, so, so my friends had to, some of them had to snap me out of it. Some, you know, they were trying to, to find that tension between invasion mm-hmm. and evasion, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, which I think is really tough for an. Uh, I mean, not to call your friends an onlooker, but from yeah. someone not in the middle of it, like you were in the middle yeah. of it. Yeah. You know. and, and we sort of touched on that a few episodes ago about how to show up for people yeah. in their low points. Yeah. So it, so they tried to do mm-hmm. that and and they did well, you know, but mm-hmm. when you're out like that, you're out, you know. And then, so then I do remember around some other people in the community went through some very difficult times as well. Mm-hmm. At that same that same spring, mm-hmm. uh, one family uh, had family in Joplin, Missouri, Oof. and when they had the, the tornado. The that's tornado. It, yeah. yeah, I remember. Another that. family, uh, their son was diagnosed with. Uh, well, they didn't know at the time if he had cancer in his bones or if he had uh, junior. I think it was premature uh, rheumatoid arthritis, mm. which was pretty serious. And well, I mean, both of those are. Yeah. Serious. A couple of other members were waiting on cancer test results right. during that whole spring, during Lent. Mm. And uh, and so so we made it to Easter, to the to the Easters. And uh <laughs> the great Easters. And we were sitting outside on the on the deck that overlooks the pond and waiting for the sun to rise. Mm. And it was a small group of us, like maybe twenty at the right. most. And uh and I was looking around the circle while we were waiting for the sun to rise and sitting in silence together. Mm-hmm. And I realized nobody gets to Easter Sunday morning alive if you're doing Easter right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that revelation of the body, the G, you know, uh, a native friend of mine, uh, John Hawk, he says, uh, he'll call me or some. T- he called me one time around Easter and around Lent, Easter, right. Holy Week. He's all, y'all going to kill Jesus again? <laughs> <laughs> That's John. Yeah, that John, John gonna, Huck is good yeah. for that. And so, yeah, Jesus has to get killed. Yeah. Uh, if, every year. Every year yeah. if there's going to be an Easter's. And so, I, and so here we were, a bunch of broken people with circumstances uh, completely beyond our control and embracing that and embracing it together. And somehow, because of that mutual embrace, there was a real hope for me, and 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 it snapped the, the the depression that I that I had been in. Um, yeah, and and I think if um, you know we though we spoke about Richard Rohr a few uh, episodes ago, and the way he described uh, what he believed it would look like when cross when Christ left the tomb, as far as like a bright light, a bright flashing light. Um, is you know the, the connection there in my mind is is as you see you're seeing the sunrise, literally seeing the sunrise, yeah. and figuratively, you know the darkness that that the community ex- had experienced that that winter and, and spring. There's still light there, even yeah. though these these dark things are occurring. Exactly the the light, and it sounded like sort of the light within you broke. Yeah. In a good way, in a good way. Right. Yeah, not like the light went out. And then then that line from the Iona Creed that we've adopted uh, 
without permission. I don't know if we're supposed to get permission for that kind of stuff. We'll, but I'm a we'll big fan of the Iona Creed. <laughs> <laughs> and it says, we, uh, uh, I believe or we believe in the sun that rises over barbed wire. Mm. What a statement, you mm. know, personally and socially you know, in, yeah. in a global sense. I believe in the sun that rises above barbed wire. Mm -hmm. and so, and they, and they wrote that creed before the Holocaust, the wow. 1930s. And so. And it's, it's so applicable. I mean, still in 2020. Yeah, exactly. And, and probably for as long as there's barbed wire. Yeah. AD 30. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as, as this, as the depression broke, as your, as your body's healing, um, and these are these are all slow processes. So right, I, very I don't, slow. You know, I don't I don't want to jump too far ahead, but as and, as you're coming out of that that stuff, let's say the second half of that year, you know, into the fall and winter, yeah. sort of what what are the things that are are resonate resonating with you? Uh, are you do you are you looking at life differently? You know, did, yeah. did some of the maybe the beliefs that you you had held on to sort of uh, melt away during the healing process? I'd, you know, maybe if you could yeah. give us some insight about that. And obviously, this is just your experience with the yeah with the near death experience. And, yeah, it's a it's yeah. an anecdote. It's a personal right. anecdote. It doesn't. Yeah. And but yeah, I'd be and interested I, to to hear about any anything like that. And I would like to also qualify, but backtrack just a minute. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was I was depressed in circumstances, not clinically depressed. Right. And so, okay. So it's which is an important yeah because if someone's listening to this and you're clinically depressed, there's I'm not minimalizing mm -hmm. the the levi I mean the uh, the heaviness of, of clinical area. depression. Mm -hmm. uh, I was circumstantially depressed, which comes and goes with your circumstances mm -hmm. and or your resilience to those. You know, whereas clinical is a whole different it's, yeah, it's a thing. Difference. And so I'm not saying, well, just do Lent and go to Easter. And <laughs> right, just watch the sunrise with your friends. Yeah, and you'll be fine. <laughs> you'll no, be, I'm not suggesting be, that at all. Right. So, so yeah, so I do remember that summer solstice, um, feeling the sun so hot in June and just feeling alive for the first time. Mm. And Marsha, had we, we had gone through a drive through the trees, pecan trees in... Mesilla, New Mexico, mm -hmm. and it's beautiful. We went to this place called Stammen's Farm. I don't think it's there anymore. They closed the store. Well, the store's closed. The the farm the farm's still open and operating. Yeah, but their their little store is closed for sure. But we had bought this uh, chocolate bark that they would make, mm -hmm. and so I had just made myself uh, a latte. And I had a piece of that bark. I took the first sip of that latte that I made. Mm. I took a bite of that bark, and then I puffed one puff from a cigar. <laughs> and the combination of those, it was the first time I remember, after all that feeling, very much alive. And, and the, uh, the exhilaration of taste mm. and being able to taste. Right. <laughs> and, and those, you know, those three, the combination of those three was just to, I tried to repeat it. Of course. Later, yeah, I never <laughs> couldn't do it. Uh, but in that moment, it was yeah. the perfect combination. And I sort of remember that being the turning point where, yeah, I'm going to be okay, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess I was past the four-month 
Mark as well, mm-hmm. I think, right? Yeah. 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 If it was of, June. Of that 40% chance of mm-hmm. living. And and so, yeah, and I wasn't, you know, going to doctors anymore and I wasn't on any any kind of chronic medication for anything that had happened. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, I was, I was feeling pretty good. And then I did have to, I did have to, uh, I did have permanent damage to the veins of my legs, mm. uh, with edema. And so I had uh-huh. to do this leg therapy still do, uh, where they compress my legs. These, these, uh, Long, uh, like sleeves, sleeves. Right? Yeah, I have to put on my legs, but that enhanced my spiritual life because I had to do that for two hours. Mm. And so I got into the habit of putting uh, uh, those bedroom blinders on uh, right. my eyes or putting a pillow over my head and putting noise canceling headphones on. And I would, I would go to deep places, right? Prayer. At least I perceive them as deep, and, uh, and it seems as though. Because, like you said, you've you've continued to that therapy. I guess you would refer yeah. to it as compression therapy. Is yeah, it's it? still no. part of your. It's still today, almost ten years later. Yeah, you still engage in that. I'm supposed to do it twice a day for two hours, but mm-hmm. I, I do it once a day for two hours. Just don't tell my doctor. <laughs> yeah, we won't <laughs> ring him up. If you're listening, doc, just yeah, uh, yeah. Head, uh, earmuffs. For and it was a only one puff of a cigar. It wasn't, you know. <laughs> He's not. I didn't get my heart rate too high. With the coffee and the, <laughs> and I never drink afternoon coffee anymore. So, <laughs> and and so, you know, I, to put some context, uh, sort of in our friendship, I guess I think I met you. I think we d- discussed this. It would have been about two years later, at the beginning of either the end of two thousand twelve or the beginning of two thousand thirteen. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, and so as early as as I can remember meeting you. Uh, at least when we really started to get to know each other and, and talking about different things, but you had always had this, and it, it go, it's connected too, I think, with the um, the uh, support group that you were looking for of survivors of people yeah. with septic, but uh, sort of adjacent to that, sort of this nudging or this calling into uh, hospice volunteer oh, yeah, work. Yeah, that's true. And, and so I don't know if you could share about that, is that directly connected with this experience or something that grew out it's, of this experience? Yeah, somewhat. What does that look like? Yeah. Well, the first thing that grew out of it was, uh, you know, my, my daughter had turned, uh, was 11, was going to be 12. And so, you know, I wasn't teaching anymore and she really mm-hmm. wanted to be homeschooled, which I was against as a public school teacher. I'm not right. a big fan of, Homeschooling, yeah. but it gave. But I didn't think I was going to be around mm-hmm. much longer, so we. I took that out. So that was an amazing experience for two years, three mm-hmm. years, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. I think uh-huh. uh, the, it was probably the best times I've had with my daughter. Um, so I'm very grateful for that, and uh, and yeah, and I had always had a uh, just a. a a faint calling, if you will, right. for year, even years before that experience okay. to, to sit, uh, to sit with the dying, mm. just felt an, uh, a call to do that, but was very much afraid of it. So I avoided it, <laughs> Right. Yeah. you know, uh, but I knew it was there and, and it was probably, um, the first talk I ever heard Richard Rohr give was to a group of hospice caregivers. 
Interesting. And that and that was probably 2007 when it started. But I was still afraid, and I and I got, I got, uh, I digressed into prison ministry instead for a couple Which of years. Which is a powerful. Yeah, and that was a new experience yeah. too. So, but I couldn't do prison experience or prison ministry and. <laughs> Well, you Hospice could, but it would, it, would, yeah. it would probably drain you yeah, in just a matter of a few weeks. To do that, I wasn't, you know, I'd already done that in ministry. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, and, and but it did lead to that eventually. And 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 so for, for the last couple of years, I've been uh, a volunteer with hospice where I just mm-hmm. sit with patients. Um, and it's it's a very heavy thing, you know. Extre- yeah, extre- I mean, I've never volunteered in hospice, but yeah, it's an extremely he- heavy sort of thing. And, and having had a near-death experience, how does that inform, or, you know, consciously, I guess you can only speak yeah. to, but when you're sitting with the, with the people that, uh, that you show up for, you know, I think you yeah. usually have one or two people, how does that inform your time? Time with them. Yeah, it's you know, uh, you know, during the dying experience, I didn't, I, I wasn't thinking about these things. Right, I was in the dying experience. So a year later, maybe two years later, probably when we met, okay, I was unpacking existential questions Mm -hmm. because it definitely my experience. And again, this is just experience. Yeah, this is what but you, I had all my usual Christian expectations when I was dying, you know, okay. the light, the tunnel, Jesus is going to come and take me by the hand and uh, take me into heaven with the gold streets. And, right. You know, St. Peter. Yeah. And I did. And I had an ex when they told me I was going to be dead in six to 12 hours. I had it. I thought maybe my younger brother who had already passed away would come pick Uh-oh. me up. Maybe, uh, you know, some of the, the saints that look after me, you know, mm-hmm. would come and get me. You know, I don't, I don't even need Jesus himself to come, you know. <laughs> don't don't bother yourself. Uh, Jesus, I know you're, you're, you're hanging out. You're a busy out. guy. Yeah, and there's more important people. So just send, uh, you know, my brother. But my brother died in a car wreck, so he couldn't pick me up. You know, he's a terrible driver. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> He's still a provisional and, in, yeah, in heaven. And they say Henry Nowen was an awful driver. And and so, you know, all these guys. So uh, so there was very much this experience, this sense of being at a bus stop waiting, and no one came to pick me up. And and this, this is as you're unpacking it later? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, remembering that feel. Yeah. Well, no, I remember having those thoughts then. Okay. And I did feel spurned. You know, I thought, mm-hmm. death doesn't even want to come get me. Right. And, Instead, uh, you got St. Francis at your bedside yeah, saying, yeah. enjoy the wounds. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and my joke at the time, and, and I still use this joke with doctors, I'll say, you know, you're very fortunate, uh, Mr. Morrison, you know, and I'll say, or and, and especially if they get religious, you know, they'll say something like, you know, well, God's really looking after you. And I and I tell them, no, God hates me. And they're like, what? Because it wakes them up out of their professionalism. Right, yeah. Why do you say that? Because he keeps letting me survive this shit. You know? Kicks so, me down the down, kicks yeah, the can a couple more years. I've survived three bouts of of a brush with death, and so. Um, but these questions, yeah. So the question was, I realized in the dying process, my memories don't really go. My memories are a part of my brain, and my brain is going to die. Uh, my experiences and God forbid my opinions right. on things are not eternal either. Right. And they come to an end. Yeah, yeah. It dies with the brain. And so, 
So this feeling of then what am I? If I'm not my opinions, if I'm not my thoughts, if I'm not my experiences, my leanings, yeah, yeah, my religious theologies and my uh, everything I've built up that I thought I am, if I'm not even my convictions, mm. uh, then what am I? What actually passes into eternity? Mm. And and there and you know and the only thing I could think of in my experience when I was dying was. I am just that breath, that original mm. breath that the Creator breathed into the mud, into the earth, into the clay, and it became a living being. And then, at the new, at the at the new earth, the new resurrection, Jesus breathed on His disciples and said, "Receive mm. the Holy Spirit, the, the resurrected Jesus." Right. And so I'm just a breath, and, yeah. and so that was a profound, that was an existential crisis, and it broke through to a profound uh, sense of being for me. And it's a truth, too. I hope so, yeah. yeah, yeah. It seems true to me. Uh, well, I, I like what Parker Palmer says. He says, we emerged from a great silence. You know, when we were born, we don't know where we were before that. Yeah. And we return to that same great silence. Mm. And so sitting with the dying, uh, I keep that in mind. And so... Uh, most of it's the immediate needs anyway. Of course. You know, right. help them get up. Uh, get you know, a drink of water. Yeah, and serve them, you know. But a lot of times it's just sitting there while they sleep, you know. And uh, and I just sit there and I be present, yeah. In the with the try to escape the volume of daytime television. Uh, you <laughs> know, if, yeah, if you bit. can meditate and pray with that stuff <laughs> yeah, on, you're a you're a master. <laughs> well and I think it's it's interesting because uh during my meditation this morning, I, I had that. There was a few seconds of, of what you're talking about, that original breath into the clay. Yeah. For some reason came up. I, I was just, I was reminded of that, you know, as I was breathing, you know, that, that breath that we share Yeah. with humanity, right? Exactly. Whoever, whoever's breathing in this moment, we're all connected in that, in that, that, that moment of breath. Exactly. Um, so, you know, I know you mentioned it uh, earlier in this particular podcast, but uh, maybe we could take a few minutes and, and this idea of imaginative prayer um, connected with your with your experience with death and also uh, your volunteer time with hospice. Um, but I was wondering if you could you've shared with me uh, an imaginative prayer you've you've sort of been cultivating or sort of in the early stages of of practicing as far as is walking people into that place of death. Uh, and I might yeah. not be wording it quite right. So if you could pick yeah, it up. Yeah, it's just that. kind of a, you know, it's you know, I hope the listeners would be patient with this one because right. it's it's still kind of fresh and I'm still unpacking this, but it's I've been in the habit of when uh, someone close to me or one of my hospice patients passes away, I it's turned into sort of a prayer ritual mm. where I, uh, I call dream walking. Okay. Uh, and I have a sense of their essence that's still on earth, uh, a sense of their presence, and they can see through my eyes mm. this beautiful desert landscape, and I go on a walk into the desert. I dream walk. A literal walk, yeah, just a literal to clarify, walk. right? And I have a sense of their presence, and and this is their their last moments to be able to see this mm. landscape, 
And depending on the circumstance, you know, I'll go into a dreamlike or a vision-like state right. of walking them across into eternity, um, walking them to the other side of the to veil, the, if you will. The and, great unknown. Yeah. And some of that's, you know, comes from Irish, uh, Celtic spirituality, um, right. where they, they reference uh, the holy women who midwife your soul across to the across the river to the other side, um, and so I had that profound experience with my aunt who passed away, my aunt Betty, uh, of those those last minute, and it was it was a profound experience because she had been blind the last couple of years of her life, okay, and so she was able to see through some earthly eyes, uh-huh. my eyes for a brief moment in prayer and before we said our not final goodbye, but. Goodbye for the present. Yeah, for for that moment. Yeah, and and I think the one of the things that I found intriguing about this practice, the the little bit you've shared with me, is when you do when you, you as you were describing it now, you were mentioning their essence and their uh, sort of their their presence on Earth. But there's even one thing that stuck out to me is is the connection that you have had with that person. Yeah, that you'll always you always have that connection. Right? Yes, it's living. It's a living memory, right? Um, and so that you know that aspect of it through this iman- imaginative prayer, this this prayer ritual that you described is is very um, as the listener profound. So maybe you could you could talk about that just a bit, just how that uh, connection informs you as you're as you're taking this walk i mean i just, it's just simply remembering them but it becomes a living memory all the people all your relations all the people that you've known they're they're inside you we've touched right our souls have touched you know and and you know not to be gross but even the air that we breathe like you mentioned and the same. and our uh what is the, our magnetic fields if you mm-hmm. will have crossed and so uh, we're forever uh, joined in that sense, you know, and so there's, it's a living connection. It's not just yeah. a, uh, it's it's really the illusion is the separateness. That's yeah, what's not real. Yeah, the connectedness real. is the real part. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's these brief moments of seeing reality. Um, and that's, that's, it's a powerful thing, you know, it's transformative for me. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really a, a beautiful practice and I appreciate, you know, I'm, Realize this is is sort of a, a sacred, sacred thing yeah. that you step into, and so I, I appreciate you sharing a little bit about it. Um, and there are some, you know, a lot of the hospice patients are have dementia or Alzheimer's, and mm. so there's no cognitive discussions going on, you know, in that sense. And 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 in some ways, that's that's a blessing for a dying person. In some ways, whereas right. others, I've I've sat with, you know, for over a, a year. Mm. And they're very, you know, they're dying of cancers and things like that, but their minds were very much. So the fear of what's going to happen to me, what is going, and they want answers, you know. Right. And, uh, and and they're probably not unique in that way. No, no, yeah. they wanted to know what's what's going to happen. You're you're a you're. I looked you up in the yellow pages. You're a pastor. <laughs> you're a, supposed to have answers to this kind of stuff. Pastor David Morrison, right? And so there. I tell him, you want you want the religious answer? I'll tell you the religious answer, yeah. you know. Or do you want to know? Uh, the honest answer. Yeah, exactly. And so we have these discussions, and they are sacred conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and important ones. Yeah, yeah. You know? 
I know every, granted, I've never dealt with the, the dying process, but every sacred conversation I've had uh, has, has been a beautiful thing. And, yeah. and sometimes they happen with complete strangers. Yeah, exactly. You, know, where you, you have a 30, 40 minute interaction, uh, but, it, but there's a sacredness to it. Yeah. Uh, well, my friend, I appreciate you opening up about all that. We've, we've come to another, uh, another hour it's quite an hour yes flew by but uh i appreciate you opening up about your your experience your experience with the dying process uh your time with some of the hospice patients and and the dream walking um and i would also like to thank uh the listeners uh thank you very much this is has been a, a beautiful process um so yeah keep keep on keeping on with us and yeah thank you for listening don't go septic (laughs) keep your mask on (laughs) and i'm not talking about your ego mask i'm talking about your physical mask your actual (laughs) mask stay healthy my friends so uh thank you thank you another another episode of desert rain community radio and uh we'll catch you we'll catch you next week